am akin to a container. I call this container consciousness. And this is what I am referring to when I say the word I in a philosophical context. I am not an animal, let alone a man. I am not made of cells or molecules or even atoms. Everything to which I have access is a piece of content, an apparition of color or shape or mood or noise, attitude or disposition. According to my theory, the contents to which I have access, they are parts of me. Thus, I cannot see you or hear you, but rather reconstructions of you made up in me. I theorize that the, the physical system which corresponds to consciousness contains the subsystems which the system regards as contents. They're not contained in the way that a pot contains water. The subsystems are actual parts of the system. I see and hear and feel contents different from someone else because I am a distinct system from them. I had a discussion with a close friend of mine about Descartes, for whom my friend has little regard. I agreed that Descartes made an error with his cogito ergo sum. Descartes thought himself to be making a well-founded deduction when, in fact, he should have been making an inference. It has never been self-evident that I exist, only self-evident that contents exist. From the character of these contents, I intuit that I exist, that the world exists, that I exist inside of the world. To say, I think, therefore I am, is to presuppose authorship for the thoughts. I have made the thoughts as they are. Is that so? Maybe and maybe not. If it were certain that I was the author of my own contents, it would be deducible that I, the author, necessarily am. My friend is no believer in the authorship of our own thoughts. Thoughts arise like feelings and perceptions. They simply are. In any case, my friend finds much more to recommend Buddhist philosophy, at least when it comes to conscious phenomenology, than recommends the Europeans. Moreover, he might hasten to add European philosophers were exceedingly late to the party. Very well. I've been known to discover blind spots in my thinking before, and often enough, areas of agreement with forefathers I never knew I had. Coming from a Buddhist perspective as he does, it has taken me a lot of conversation to get to the point where he can begin to understand the perspective on consciousness that I lay out in my neuroscientific work. Often, my friend will light up when I explain something to him and accuse me of being a Buddhist myself. Today, let's look at Tibetan Buddhism as its thought turns towards self-identity. I'll read from a concise volume which my friend recommends, titled Progressive Stages of Meditation on Emptiness, by Kenpo Tsultrum Gaitso Rinpoche. The book is divided into five stages. The first, which is what I will look at today, is called the Sravaka Meditation on Not-Self. The author writes, quote, At this stage, one does not consider the emptiness of all phenomena, but only the emptiness or lack of self in a person. The importance of this is that it is the clinging to the idea that one has a single, permanent, independent, truly existing self that is the root cause of all one's suffering. One does not need to have an explicit or clearly formulated idea of self in order to act as if one had one. Self here means the implied self, which might also be regarded as implied in the behavior of animals. Animals, just like us, identify themselves with their bodies and minds and are constantly seeking physical and mental comfort as they try to avoid discomfort and assuage pain. Both animals and humans act as if they have a self to protect and preserve. 
and one regards this behavior as automatic and instinctive as well as normal. When pain or discomfort arise, the automatic response is to try to remove it. It is extraneous to the self, and the implication is that the self would naturally be happy if all pain and suffering were removed. Strangely, however, when we try to analyze our behavior in relation to this self, we realize that we are very unclear as to what this self really is." Unquote. As you will recognize, if you've been with me for a while, I divide the notion of self into two aspects, the self-construct and the self as point of view. I regard the conflation of these two ideas as a common mistake, and in my opinion, it is the self-construct which Buddhist philosophy denies. The author describes the illusionary self as a single, permanent, truly existing self that is the root cause of all one's suffering. This idea is compelling because it suggests the possibility of attaining a detachment from the self-construct without the loss of consciousness itself. I've observed that a lot of suffering adheres to the anticipation of a future. For example, in a hard run, how much further could you go if you only suffered the instantaneous pain of tired muscles and exhaustion, unmoored from a nagging sense that the exercise will not soon be over. It is strange that we could endure something strenuous and painful now, much better in the knowledge that it will be over in the next moment. What's strange about it is that we never experience the next moment, but only the moment we are in. Conscious experience does not stretch out to include future experience. There is only, really and truly, this moment occurring now. The future provides a context which changes the experience we are having now. Not the real future, of course, but the sense of its approach occurring now. I should also add that it makes sense in terms of evolution, that consciousness arising in the brain of an animal should be adapted to the best interests of the vehicle. All we experience are the contents of consciousness, those contents give us the full picture of reality as far as we are concerned, so naturally the networks of the brain have been sculpted not to rescue us from suffering and illusion, but to give us the illusion that we are suffering. The author says that we are constantly seeking physical and mental comfort and to avoid discomfort and assuage pain. In my experience, this is undeniably true. For me, our conundrum is best illustrated by Arthur Schopenhauer. Here's a passage from his piece on the vanity and suffering of life. Schopenhauer writes, quote, We feel pain, but not painlessness, care, but not freedom from care, fear, but not safety and security. We feel the desire as we feel hunger and thirst, but as soon as it has been satisfied, it is like the mouthful of food which has been taken and which ceases to exist for our feelings the moment it has been swallowed. We painfully feel the loss of pleasures and enjoyments as soon as they fail to appear. But when pains cease, even after being present for a long time, their absence is not directly felt, but at most they are thought of intentionally by means of reflection. For only pain and want can be felt positively, and therefore they proclaim themselves. Well-being, on the contrary, is merely negative. Therefore, we do not become conscious of the three greatest blessings of life as such, namely health, youth, and freedom, as long as we possess them, but only after we have lost them, for they too are negations." Unquote. This is not the description of consciousness as it necessarily is. This is the description of consciousness as it would occur in a living organism if it were to be of any utility to the organism's survival and reproduction. That is how I come to conclude that animal consciousness has a function. According to the temporally integrated causality landscape, my theory, 
What we really are is a system with a point of view upon its subsystems. But the self-construct with its motivations and preference and preferences, this is composed of subsystems alone. These provide meaning and context. I, the system, am not identical to these. I am not a person. I contain a person, an illusion of self. It is composed and elaborated for me in the evolved structures which give rise to the subsystems. These arms and legs are no more mine than are the objects I see in the room. They are contents I behold, and all relation to them is a construct of mind. Kenpo Tsultrum Gaimtso Rinpoche continues, quote, Non-Buddhist thinkers have defined the self variously as resting in the brain, blood, or heart, or having such qualities as true or transcendental existence in or outside of the mind or body. To have any meaning, such a self has to be lasting, for if it perished every moment, one would not be so concerned about what was going to happen to it the next moment. It would not be oneself anymore. Again, it has to be single. If one had no separate identity, why should one worry about what happened to oneself any more than one worried about anyone else's? It has to be independent, or there would be no sense in saying, I did this, or I have that. If one had no independent existence, there would be no one to claim the actions and experiences as its own. We all act as if we had lasting, separate, independent selves that it is our constant preoccupation to protect and foster. It is an unthinking habit that most of us would normally most, uh, be most unlikely to question or explain. However, all our suffering is associated with this preoccupation. All loss and gain, pleasure and pain, arise because we identify so closely with this vague feeling of selfness that we have. We are so emotionally involved with and attached to this self that we take it for granted. The meditator, the meditator does not speculate about this self. He does not have theories about whether it does or does not exist. Instead, he just trains himself to watch dispassionately how his mind clings to the idea of self and mine and how all his sufferings arise from this attachment. At the same time, he looks carefully for that self. He tries to isolate it from all his other experiences. Since it is the culprit, as far as all his suffering is concerned, he wants to find it and identify it. The irony is that however much he tries, he does not find anything that corresponds to the self. Unquote. All loss and gain, all pleasure and pain, arise because we identify with this self-construct. I believe that is so. I am a container with a perspective only upon what is contained, and these are mere contents. They have meaning, as I have tried to explain in the past, only in relativity to one another. The meanings aren't real additions, but geometric relations to one another, just as parallelness does not exist in addition to two side-by-side -side lines on a plane. The author illustrates the Buddhist viewpoint on emptiness using the example of dreams. Here in the first stage, the inquiry concerns the existence or non-existence of the self. The author writes, quote, the Buddha often used the example of a dream to illustrate his teachings on emptiness, and this example can be applied with increasing subtlety at each stage of the meditation progression on emptiness. It is a good example for showing how the two truths, relative and absolute, work together. In a dream, there is a sense of being a person with a body and mind living in a world of things to which one feels attracted or averse depending on how they appear. As long as one does not realize it is just a dream, one takes all these things as real and one feels happy or sad on account of them. For example, one may dream of being eaten by a tiger or being burnt in a fire. 
In the absolute truth, no one is being eaten or burnt. But still, in terms of the dream, one might really suffer as if one had been. The suffering arises simply by virtue of the fact that one identifies oneself with the person in the dream. As soon as one becomes aware that it is only a dream, even if the dream does not stop, one is nonetheless free to think, it does not matter, it is only a dream, it is not really happening to me. The person that was suffering in the dream only arose as a temporary manifestation dependent on the condition of one's not being aware that it was only a dream. It had no separate, independent, lasting self of its own. Understanding this intellectually is not enough to free oneself from a strongly ingrained habit of clinging to one's mind and body as a separate, independent, lasting self. One has to examine the stream of one's mental and physical experience again and again, reflecting on what one does or does not find until one reaches total conviction and certainty. Having become convinced of what is the case, one that has... One then has to meditate, resting the mind in this newfound knowledge until the veils caused by one's habitual patterns of thought have finally dissolved. At this point, direct, unmistakable realization of not-self arises, and it is this genuine experience that actually liberates one from suffering. Unquote. Here's the rub. In the ultimate sense, in ontological terms, it is entirely likely that there is no meaning in the universe. It is entirely likely that all values are relative from the mundane to the very limits of morality. This is the existential problem. Pleasure and pain, love and contempt, right and wrong, these are all discoveries within the emergent human meaning layer of reality. Within this level of analysis, there are values because from the perspective of living things, living things matter. From the perspective of an individual animal, there are important things to achieve and others to avoid. Things which occur sufficiently far away, across the galaxy, say, matter to us as little as those which occurred in the distant past. As far as we concern, are concerned, within the meaning layer of reality, events of the past are not real. Apparently, the human mind has become sophisticated enough to undermine its own primary objective. We are able to contemplate philosophy. We know of our own death, and even that we can bring it upon ourselves by choice. Many people do. The discovery of not-self, if it is a discovery that can be made, is the discovery that there is nothing at bottom which is important to do in pursuit of fulfillment or necessary to avoid for fear of suffering. These are relative states, embedded within a substrate of meaning which ultimately reduces to nothing. The cessation of existence at the end of life resolves this. In the deepest sense, you have nothing to lose. Since you do not exist, ultimately, but only relatively, there is nothing ultimately lost with your passing. There is relative loss, perhaps, but only among relative phenomena. Nothing new has come into being when you awaken into conscious life, and nothing has gone away when you die. Is this fundamentally true? Perhaps it is. But even so, I'm inclined to consider a different perspective on the implications of this truth. What I've just been observing might lead one to a nihilistic worldview. On the other hand, I don't have a nihilistic worldview. How can this be so? I've observed to you two different levels of analysis, one emergent from the other. There's the ultimate level in which meaning itself is absent. Then there is the level of being, in which everything is meaningful. All meanings are relative by definition. This is like the emergence of another dimension. A cube has taken form where there was only a square. Let's consider this two-level reality, starting with some low-stakes examples. A video game or a novel. 
The video game ultimately is nothing but zeros and ones. There is no castle, there are no monsters, no treasures, and no hero's journey. We know this. No one who plays the game is confused on this account. So why do we play? Because it brings us psychological satisfaction. We enjoy it, obviously. Most sets of zeros and ones do not make enjoyable games, just as most sets of two-dimensional figures do not make cubes with the addition of a third dimension. They make awkward shapes and awkward games. Similarly, most sets of characters on the page, stretched out over the length of a book, do not make good stories. The conditions in the video game or the book chapter, which we expect and which give us value, are special. But this specialty cannot be discovered at the fundamental level of analysis. Indeed, there is no way to predict from the fundamental level to the emergent level what would be valuable. What set of characters on the page or list of zeros and ones in the code would be satisfying at the level of meaning? Given these analogies, why should we expect ultimate fundamental truth to be preferable to the relative truth of our emergent worlds? The question is, if this is a dream shared among emergent conscious beings, the dream of living in a world of people and places, of highs and lows and purposes, would I wish it to end, to awaken into emptiness? Would the discovery of the ultimate emptiness encourage me to hasten its manifestation? There is nothing that it is like to be dead. Isn't that what we atheists believe? So be it. Would you take the blue pill or the red one, if the blue were a placebo, and the red a cyanide tablet.